Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neil, and I'm joined by Dwight H. Little, filmmaker, and he just wrote his memoirs, Still Rolling Inside the Hollywood Dream Factory. It's very cool to have you here. I wrote them for you, buddy. I had a great time reading. Now, I will admit, they were a little late getting me uh, my copy. I got it last night, uh, <laughs> almost midnight, but I actually stayed up all night and read it. Are you serious? You got it last night? Yes, yes, yes. I don't well, want to throw them under the bus. I'm sure it was a... Well, thank you so much for taking a look at it. Man. No, it was a really good read. I'm not just saying that because you're here. I, uh, <laughs> I started reading it and like... I really like you're very honest about um, the ups and downs of filmmaking, but you can still see your love of movies throughout the uh, throughout the whole story. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad it was uh, a good read for you. Yeah. And so when did you start writing it? Well, I, I had ideas about it um, because I had been doing these little guest lectures at UCLA, you know, these evening sort of, you know, what do they call them? Well, you know, that's just a <laughs> guest lecture and, there were so many questions from so many kids about so many topics and I couldn't fit it into 45 minutes. So, so I thought, well, maybe I should write this stuff down. And then um, all of a sudden, you know, our little friend COVID arrived and I had time on my hands uh, like we all do. Yeah. And I thought if there was ever in a time slash excuse to write this book, now would be it. So it's my COVID book. Right. It, it is interesting so many different uh, creative things came out of COVID. Not that we were happy we had, you know, a shutdown or anything, but. Well, you're just forced into thinking different thoughts and, and you can't go out much. So, you know, there you are. Yeah, I live in a small town, so I walked a lot and I listened to many audiobooks, And that's when I decided I'm going to listen to The Stand for the first time because it's 40 hours. And wow. it started right away about this disease spreading around. And I was like, this is probably not the book to read at this moment. Because no, this was early on. The walk, <laughs> yeah. the walk itself is certainly good for you. Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, not just about me, but I've lost uh, half my body weight, 180 pounds over the last few years. So. Wow. Yeah. What so town, I, where are you caught? Where are we online from? Where? Um, it, yeah, this, well, we're not live yet, but uh, I'm in Massachusetts. Oh, okay. All right. Got um, it. A little town, Cape Cod. So very small town. So I could walk around and not really be around anybody. Well, that's the way it has to be in COVID times. Yeah. So what was the process like to go back, you know, and think about everything? Think about all your movies. And well, your the hard part was a little bit of the structure of it, trying to figure out the structure. And then I real, realized something I hadn't thought of before, which is I had, I've had two careers. I was in movies, um, starting off in indies and B movies and kind of working up to studio pictures. That was like part one of my life. And then I switched over to network television, including series and TV movies. And that took me another oh, 20 years or so. And, and then I thought, okay, that's a very interesting perspective. Not a lot of people have spent time like that in both worlds and then when i thought about it i said that's how i should write the book it should be about the film and the tv and how it's really a different job directing for film and for television people might be interested to know what how that is different yeah and uh, reading a book it's definitely and it also has changed a lot throughout the, the time you're doing it well and it's changing now as we're speaking i mean I think the uh, after effect of these strikes and the 
the uh, conglomerations and the condensing of the business, I, I think in three to five years, it's going to be very hard to recognize. There's shit is happening. Right. Uh, I don't know if you could predict, but where do you see things going in the next few years after the strike? Well, I think it's going to come down to three content. Per, I mean, listen, I don't know what I'm talking about it since you asked. I'm, just, <laughs> right. I'm talking out of the top of my head. Sure. I think there's going to be three content providers. Um, I think two of them will continue to be Silicon Valley, um, you know, some version of Netflix and, I mean, Amazon, um, basically Silicon Valley providers. And then there'll be maybe two or three legacy studios. Um, they've already gobbled up 20th Century Fox. Disney gobbled them up. Uh, Disney's talking about unloading ABC. I think you're going to see Paramount and Sony absorbed. Um, I think we're going to end up with a few legacy movie studios making primarily uh, branded entertainment, which is almost where we are already, you know, Marvel, DC, et cetera, event, event programming. And then um, I don't know. And, and then the, the Netflix, Amazon people, they'll be able to finance smaller, what we, what we used to call indie movies. Um, I just saw one on Netflix uh, called Reptile with Benicio Del Toro. And that was a, a standalone movie made for Netflix. And it's something that even five years ago would have been made by, you know, a small independent company. But that's that's all. No one has the money to, to pay for that now. So I, the short answer is I think more conglomeration, very few content providers, and kind of, you know, what do we have for what do we have for cell phones? We have Verizon and AT and T, right? It's like three. Maybe there's a maybe there's a couple more. I don't know. Uh, so o over the years, when I've talked to people about like the rise of streaming, um, it really depends on people that were around a long time, veterans. Like they weren't uh, huge on streaming. I think younger people liked it because there's more platforms. Uh, how, how do you feel about the rise of streaming? Well, I like it in concept. I wish it, I just wish it hadn't wiped out the independent film business because it has overseas. And, you know, yeah, there's an A24 that's still kind of struggling to hang on. Um, but most of the things we used to think of as, you know, Focus and all these, well, what was what, then Miramax and these smaller companies, it's just not viable to release an 18, $20 million movie into theaters. And it's just, unfortunately, it's not there. And I, and I think that the, once they dropped House of Cards, all however many episodes, and everybody binge watched them, you know, then this, then binging became a thing. So I, I feel like the unintended consequence of streaming was it wiped out the, the movie, the, the indie movie business. I mean, Spielberg's been talking about this for years. Like, you're going to be left with a few marquee movies that you'll pay 17 bucks for. And if he also said, and he got in a lot of trouble for this, that if you make a, a movie whose who's final destination is to be seen on, on TV, it is by definition, it's a TV movie. Like, that's what it is. I mean, you can say it's a feature on Netflix, but it's not. It's a TV movie. That's my view. And uh, So what are the differences for a cinematic movie and a, and a TV movie? 
I think that, first of all, in movies up till now, generally you've had more time to explore and create original characters. The shooting time was longer. The post-production time was longer. The music, the scoring, it just, the whole thing would had a much more, uh, a, a longer creative arc. And when you're doing something on a tight budget and very, and it's much smaller money, um, a lot of decisions have to be made that aren't always the best creatively. Um, I also think that you're reaching a, a, a what used to be called the cinephiles, you know, people who knew movies, who knew the who appreciated movies. And when you just throw something up on Netflix to a really broad audience, I mean, you can see the kind of content that hits that hits a nerve. You know, what is it? There's a Korean show where everybody gets killed and it was like the number one thing they'd ever done. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what, like, what is that? Is it a movie? Right. I, I don't know what, I don't know what that is exactly. I've noticed a lot of stuff on Netflix um, that'll be really big um, over like the next year or so. No one ever talks about it again. Like uh, Bird Box was like this huge movie, but. There's no like, snake power. They're, for, they're forgotten. The minute they're done airing, they're forgotten. One of the things about my films, such as they are, mm -hmm. is that they, they, they run on forever on cable, which is, you know, Mark Fredez, Rapid Fire, Murdered 1600, uh, Halloween 4, Phantom of the... These movies run all the time because they're standalone, they're standalone movies. But you're right. If you, if, you, if you see a Hulu thing, with well, the minute you're done watching it, it's over. It's never revisited. Mm -hmm. Like, if you think of... I went to the Arrow Theater, which is one of our revival theaters here in Santa, uh, Santa Monica, and watched the screening of No Country for Old Men, you know. And, I mean, that's a work of art that will be viewed many, many years from now. Um, it's just a standalone artistic creation. Mm -hmm. um, and it holds up like it was made yesterday. Now, I don't know what the Netflix version of that is. Yeah, I agree. Oddly enough, I just read the book for the first time. Um, which oh, my God. It's fantastic. And sometimes I, I, I usually read the book after the movie, and I'll think, wow, even if I like the movie, wow, they really missed something. But um, that is a movie they really they really captured the book, and all the characters they cast perfectly. Well, we missed them. We missed the Coen brothers. I don't know where they are. It's almost yeah, just like... The one has a new movie coming out, but they're not. they didn't do it together. Well, you know, for a while there, almost every time they did a movie, it was so, even when they missed, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't know if we have those film artists working in, in, in the Netflix, and I don't mean to pick on Netflix, it could be any of them, but, you know, in, in that orbit, um, you know, David Fincher, I think, does things, but he his his name is in from movies. The other big problem is where are you going to get stars? Once this generation ages out, where are the stars going to come from? Because, because the streaming people, they just cannibalize movie stars. You know, it's like, oh, let's get John Cena or, or well, let's get The Rock or let's get somebody. But, but their names were made in movies. Mm -hmm. And and so where the where's Matt Damon going to come from once there's no once there's no um, born identity. Where where where's the where's that guy gonna come from? It's interesting. Uh, oddly Can enough, you... I used to do a pro wrestling podcast, which is very different. But 
Uh, it's kind of the same thing in there because they keep bringing back uh, John Cena and Rock are actually back now in WWE. And uh, a lot of people are like, you know, they need to build the new uh, stars for the next generation instead of always bringing back, you know, guys from the previous era. Well, who's a, who's a new movie star? You know, I mean, obviously Ryan Gosling's a moving star. You can name a few. But they didn't make their, their name in television, I mean, or in streaming. Also, when you, when you have a company like Apple making product, um, what is their film division on their balance sheet? I don't know. It's a percentage of a percentage of, of their business, right? Their entertainment line item is almost inconsequential. So uh, to get back to your book here, uh, so well, I just I didn't want to, th- but I know this is int- very interesting. Hope you, I find interest. Hope other yeah. people find interesting. And uh, I, well, I did want to get back to the book though, because Halloween Four. Um, it's funny because when I first was doing some research on Halloween Four, a lot of stuff I read online is uh, not the same that's in your book, which I right. found very interesting. Another reason why it's good for people to read your book. So when you f- the first script you see for for Halloween Four that you didn't like. Uh, was that the one written by uh, John Carpenter, or had that already been gone by the no, time? No, his name wasn't. What I read was not an actual script. What was presented to me by uh, Mustafa and his number two, whose name I don't remember, but um, it was a treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that the men whose names are on the movie um, uh, the, with Alan, there's a couple of other writers, they had been involved with that treatment. But it was very unlike what Alan McElroy and I were trying to do. And it was um, closer to what you'd think of as a traditional teenage Slasher, kind of thing. I thought, well, this is, first of all, this is 1988. And we had just gone through this massive cycle of prom night and terror train and you know, a lot of, well, we'd already had the Friday the 13th series and Freddy series, so it seemed stale to me. I mean, even if it was going to be Michael, it just seemed stale. They wanted Michael back. Obviously, that was the whole point. Mm-hmm. And Alan and I had to try and come up with some pseudo-credible way to get Michael back. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, that's, we had him as a burn patient, in a coma for 10 years in the basement of a hospital. And, you know, we tried to work that out as best we could. Um, but I don't know. I, I pitched them what I would call my, I wanted to do a police procedural and it, it threw them off at first. Cause I said, look, you have a detective in this case, Loomis, who's really a doctor, not a policeman on the pursuit of an escaped serial killer. Okay, that's Silence of the Lambs. I mean, not exactly, but it's it's a police procedural. It's a true crime story. Mm-hmm. I said, if we do it like that and pay attention to the, the details, like if you're going to get overalls, he's got to kill the guy in the, in the gas station, get the overalls. If he's going to knock down the power lines, he's got to do the telephone lines, do it with the truck. He throws Bucky into the power lines and shut it down. You know, everything is very thought out. As he approaches Haddonfield, he, he gets the mask from a drugstore. So we, we tried, and then Loomis is just knows where he's going. He knows he's going for the knees, and he's just in pursuit. And I think when I pitched them that, that it took them a minute. They, they didn't 
know if they liked it when they heard it. But I persuaded them that this was the way to go. And then we, and I also pitched them the ending, uh, which even worked on paper, works great in the movie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the ending is kind of supernatural. Uh, did you ever want more like supernatural stuff elements throughout the whole movie? Because you also talk about being more realistic, I guess. Yeah, no, it was just that it was really the ending that the, the curse of Michael is transferred in, into Jamie Lloyd um, to give it that sort of twist ending. Um, I think there is um, a line that Alan wrote at the police station where someone says, like, what is he? You know, what is he? I think Alan's line was, he's evil on two legs. And um, which, you know, kind of leaves that, it's true, but it also leaves it somewhat open. Yeah. That's what I think is scary about the first movie is, uh, you know, you don't know if he's just a guy, uh, a person who, what is evil? Is that is that a supernatural thing or is it just a human who's, you know, just killing people? Well, you know, in the old days, I mean, this is where the idea of possession comes from because human beings who behave like monsters, the only explanation was that they were possessed. Right, they couldn't just be a whacked out human doing this, it, it, it had to be the devil, mm-hmm. so that's why it's always a very fine line. But we, we did touch on the supernatural, of course, at the end with um, you know, Jamie's curse and all that, yeah. And uh, the Loomis character to me is always what really sells the evil of Michael, especially in the first movie. There's really not that many deaths, it's just Loomis is you know, talk about how evil he is. and He's a man of science, and he's, like, come to the conclusion he's just evil, and you have to keep him locked up. Uh, what was Donald Pleasance himself like? Because uh, you don't talk about him too much in the book. Well, he was, um, I was a bit in awe, honestly, because I was <laughs> old enough to know The Great Escape and some yeah. of these amazing, you know, places that he'd been. Um, I found Donald to be very professional. He needed to know everything where he was, what his character was doing, what this, I mean, he needed, you know, which is, which he should have. He needed to have everything laid out for him in a meaningful way. I did notice that he, he would, he was an older gentleman that he would tire easily. So, um, and when he tired, he got a little cranky. So I figured if I had five great hours with Donald. And so what I would do is just schedule the day so he's not hanging around for 14 hours and, and get him, get the best out of him and then let him go, let him go and schedule other work in that day. And, and once I really did the schedule for him, I found that his energy and his uh, just focus just really came up. But he was, you know, he was getting up there then. And uh, maybe you wouldn't know this, but do you know how he felt about the Dr. Loomis character? Because as you mentioned, uh, previous generation, know, you know, he's like uh, a great actor. And then later on, a lot of people know him as Dr. Loomis. So I don't know well, how I think he, he felt, felt like he was slumming at first, um, you know, but the the English actors, just, they have a bit of a tradition of just working. Do you know what I mean? It's like not being too, even... Lawrence Olivier, even later in his career, like was taking acting gigs, you know. Michael Caine is in bad B movies. You know, yeah. these guys are a little more 
like if it's a job and if I can do well in it, I'll take it. But I do think, um, I'm not sure anybody imagined what was going to happen with Halloween 1. I mean, the way that that caught on. Um, and I do feel like he was protective of Dr. Loomis. I don't think he ever realized he'd be known as Dr. Loomis. But he stopped. He wasn't, I think by Halloween 4, he wasn't fighting it anymore. It was like, this is something that's happened to me as an actor. Um, and you hear this a lot with actors where they'll, they'll fight it for a while. And then although Robert England's the same way, you know, he did a lot of character actor work before Freddie. Mm-hmm. He was in Gary Busey movies and he was in, he would, he was the voice of big Wednesday. He was a working character actor. And then once, Freddie happened like, well, do I fight it or do I lean into it? And uh, he, he just decided this is kind of a blessing. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a horror movie actor. Yeah. And you can tell uh, at conventions, he really loves it. That's another thing. I think if Donald Pleasance was around, you know, later on, he also would have uh, benefited because he could have made a good living, you know, like Robert England doing the. the convention. Oh yeah. Robert goes out a lot. Bill Mosley goes out a lot. Yeah. And so does Danielle. I just did a little movie with the three of them, which we're all excited about. If you can let your fans know again, I have, I have a little tidbit about that because my friend and sometime co-host here. Uh, Treacherous Trista, Trista Robinson actually plays uh, the monster in this movie. Oh no! Which I hope, hopefully, I can say yeah. Of course, of yeah. course. Um, that's a movie that, like, I was talking to Robert about this, Robert England about this because when we did Family of the Opera, it was an extremely polarizing movie. Um, the Andrew Lloyd. By the way, Web- Natty Knox is the name of the movie. I, I Natty Knox. So I will talk about that only in the yeah. sense that. The family of the opera, the, the the gore the gore people just hated all the opera, and the and the Lloyd Webber Broadway people just hated all the gore, and everybody was pissed off. And then twenty years later, the Blu-ray comes out, and this movie people saw it for what it is, not what they thought it was going to be. And now Robert and I both get a lot of really good attention about that movie people love it now and then what i'm talking about is his version robert's version of the fan of the opera yeah in a similar way natty knox which has just come out because it's billed robert and danielle there was a lot of expectation that there might be you know kind of a gore movie and it's it's just a it's a fun halloween movie and the people that want to have a fun halloween movie love it four stars the people who wanted like an Eli Roth kind of saw slaughter are kind of pissed off. So it's a very polarizing movie, but I really encourage people to watch it because you will have a great time. Bill Mosley's fantastic in that. Yeah, uh, big Bill Mosley fan. Another uh, lots of been on the show many times. Uh, so where can people see Natty Knox? So um, I'll tell you, it's, it's all on Amazon and iTunes and all the places, but it is for free on Tubi right now. Oh, so sweet. I'm a big fan if, of Tubi. If anybody wants to see it for free on Tubi, it's right there. Yeah. And from what I understand from my independent uh, filmmaker friends, Tubi is actually uh, one of the better places that pays uh, the filmmakers. Well, it's blowing up, Tubi. You know, I didn't know much about it even a year ago. But that what it, what's what they call AVOD, advertising video on demand, 
And it's just taken off because I guess the younger audience doesn't really mind that there's a commercial break. They kind of check their device anyway. Right. <laughs> you know? And uh, so people are a little less um, inclined to order something for $7.99, you know. Um, but to see Freebie or Tubi, it, it seems those those are growing, those platforms. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And so uh, we were talking about Robert England and uh, your version of uh, Phantom of the Opera. And you were talking earlier, too, about kind of the connection to Donald Pleasance. Like he didn't know to if he should, you know, run with the Freddy character. So did he have any apprehension playing the Phantom of the Opera? Because um, not not just that it's horror, but it's another guy with a burnt face. So it's a similar, a similar look in a way. Well, but again, I think what he saw there was a chance to do something different but in the universe of what he was known for mm -hmm. in other words there was still and of course the marketing <laughs> the marketing people tried to sell freddie you know um but it was in the same universe but it was obviously very different so i think there was a little bit of a win-win in his mind mm -hmm. um and you know it, it had been a part that had been played by horror icons in the past and um, he wanted, I think, to add his take on it. He, he's great in the film, if you have a chance. Yeah, yeah. No, I actually watched it recently. I watched it when it came out, and, uh, and I've seen it since, but I watched it uh, recently for the interview. And and it, does it play differently for you all these years later? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm, I, I'll be honest. When I saw it, I think I was probably in junior high when it came out, and I probably did think it was going to be more of a traditional, uh, like a Freddy movie. And watching it now as a you know as an adult, uh, yeah, it plays totally different for me. And uh, the sets are amazing. It's something I really appreciate now. Uh, I think honestly, I think the sewer sets, all of it looks good, but the sewer sets, I think, is really when the movie like hits it for me. Well, the that, score, like, the great. score is absolutely oh, score, yeah. unbelievable. Uh, Misha Siegel did the score, and he just did Natty Knox. He's a oh, very cool. He's a great composer, and and. Uh, he wrote original opera music for that movie, Don Juan Triumphant. And it, it, it's just um, the movie, the music, the, the color, the wardrobe, the production value, the performances. I, I'm very proud of that movie. And I think that's going to keep living on that one. Yeah. And that's something that um, not all genres of movies do. Like, a, like of a drama, if no one really liked it at one point, it's probably never going to find an audience, but uh, horror movies seem to um, either find new audiences or, you know, people just keep, you know, watching them over, over decades. Well, there's people can't get enough of Halloween four, as you know, yeah. now that being said, we weren't, no one loved us when that was <laughs> either. I mean, uh -huh. the, the audience did, yeah, yeah, but we got pretty heavily bashed by the critics, but um, they like it now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So was there any, did you have like an idea of where five would, would take the Danielle Harris? Yeah, Alan and I had an idea for that. And it's really my fault. It's not um, Mustafa's fault because he came, he wanted me to do five. And um, I was sort of stuck in this whole thing we're talking about with Donald Pleasance. I thought, well, if I do five, then I'm really going to be the pigeonhole as that guy. And I had other ambitions for myself. Um, and I wanted to just show other sides to me. And eventually I did do weird things for me, like Free Willy 2, 
um, Murdered 1600 is a much more traditional detective story. Um, and so, so Alan and I weren't able to bring five to fruition. And I've never watched the whole thing, to be honest with you, because they, it just wasn't carried on properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because it really sets up for the Daniel Harris character to be the next, you know, killer. Oh yeah, it's it's all laid out, and I I don't know what happened with five, but anyway, I I don't want to speak poorly because sure, sure. Uh, but it is I will say that they're already talking about uh, rebooting Halloween, <laughs> even though they just did the new trilogy. I've seen a lot did. of people say instead of a direct sequel to one, why don't we get a direct sequel to part four to see what happens to that character? And I think follow, that's yeah, true. let's do the proper sequel to four yeah and you know in my view you know sasha well sasha died but um you have ellie still alive i know they killed her in five but if it if it was a direct sequel to four you still have rachel carruthers um you know because she was at the, alive at the end of four and jamie and um so it'd be interesting to do a halloween we a four sequel yeah yeah and and now uh, there's weird rules. They do these. They did direct sequel to part two, and then a few years later, or ten years later, they do direct sequel to one. And so who knows? Maybe maybe it's possible. well. Then the Rob Zombie stuff. I don't know. Right. What, that was all off on another tangent altogether. <laughs> yeah, it is weird because when I was a kid growing up, I could watch whenever I could watch all the Friday Thirteenth in a row and all these movies in a row. Now I do think, like, if I was watching them for the first time, it would be very strange because they'd start, they'd end, they'd reboot, and then they'd start. Then there'd be, like, a sequel to the, the older ones. It would well, be very Daniel, hard to follow. Daniel Harris is in the Rob Zombie movies. Right, right. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it's like an alternate reality. Of the, yeah, it's very weird. So uh, something I found really interesting when reading uh, your stuff about Halloween 4, so you start off talking that your family and friends are, like, warning you, like, don't do, like, a... Not just a horror movie, but like, a, you know, a sequel of a franchise part four. And you even say that um, you don't always choose a project just for artistic decision. But then later on, as you're talking about Halloween four, you say this is the movie for that time that you're the most has the most of you in it. So it does become like, you know, first, maybe it's not just uh, an artistic like decision, but you become part of that movie. So does um, when does that happen? When does like when do you like? go from like i'm just going to do this because i'm going to get in the the guild and all these things to like oh this is really something that i want to do and when it's I personal started to me. work with alan on the story i think i started to get excited about it and then i think i mentioned in the book i did some research about halloween yeah and, and in new england where i am yeah. yeah and i started to see these these images of you know just that whole harvest experience and the end of I don't know I was suddenly got all inspired and also I had done a lot of you know midwestern trick-or-treating so this was not out of my wheelhouse I kind of knew what that felt like and I mentioned about that in Free Willy too as well I mean I, I had some personal connection but no many 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 decisions in a filmmaking career are driven by you know you have to make a living. It's 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 not a hobby. <laughs> you you have to work. You have to work for money. Period. Mm -hmm. But there has to be a. I assume there has to be a balance between 
Uh, or does it always happen like, okay, I'm doing this because I'm getting paid, obviously. But do you always get sucked into the movie then? Yes, always. You start off thinking, well, I'm a mercenary. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm, I, I, it's a, I'm sorry, I put my phone down. Um, you know, that I'm going to get, I'm going to get involved for money and I'm just going to not, but you don't, you get emotionally attached sooner or later. Is that good or bad? Cause I it's could see great. it being. No, it's great. great. All right. It's great. Cause now you're just all in, you know, you're in up to your elbows and, and you just make the best uh, movie. It's like, I, sometimes I make the analogy to people. If you're a lawyer and you spend all these years learning these skills, you don't always get to pick your client. Well, I'm just going to defend innocents who are wrongly accused you know it doesn't go that way you're going to use your skills to defend the innocent the guilty you know all kinds of people and your job is to be a really good lawyer and not to have too much judgment about whether you like the client or not that's mm -hmm. kind of how i think of it okay i have these skills as a director and i'm going to apply them as best I can. And I don't love all the clients the same, <laughs> but, but you, but you can, you can love your own professional skills. Yeah, no, I, I know I've, I was, uh, I like that about the book and, um, I like that, you know, I don't think you could probably really make something pro and uh, you always go in and rewrite the script. If you don't like the script to make oh, it something that you want to oh, make. Exactly. So uh, I really like uh, your story with the first time you meet Steven Seagal and uh, and and a gun is involved and, and I mean, so that doesn't disappoint my like my my imagination of what the man is uh, like. immediately a gun is involved <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I won't spoil it totally uh, but um so when you're actually working with him because uh, I've had some former guests on the show who worked with him who honestly aren't big fans of his and they said that he would uh, take liberties with. Um, people he was in fight scenes with because they couldn't really fight back, but he could hit them. Did you ever witness anything like that? No, that, I know that's a common, you know, urban fact and, or, or fiction. Uh, I, I'm assuming it may have done, but, but Stephen was on his way up when I worked with him. That's true too. Yeah. And he had done above the law, which hadn't made a lot of money, but people were kind of took notice. Hard to kill did make money, which is a movie he did not like. And then when he came to us, his cachet was on its way up. And um, he is also, imagine this was a very young, I mean, compared to now, sure. fit man, very athletic man. Um, he is a black belt in Aikido. Um, he's more than capable of hurting somebody. Um, I never saw him hurt anybody. Um, I think people got banged around, but it, you know, there's stunt men and right. Like I said, I do a wrestling podcast too, and it, they're not out to hurt each other, but you falling down is going to hurt. There's no, you know, yeah, you, you can't way, fake gravity or something. Or you can't fake gravity, right? So I never. He's 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 difficult in one sense, but I never saw this this mean streak that I hear about. I never saw that. So. Yeah, so I I did have Tom Wright on from uh, from your movie, and uh, he was not he was not a big fan of uh, of of Stephen. But uh, I, I however I however am a huge fan of Tom Wright. Yeah, I am too. He's a, he's a I just think the he's the greatest. If you ever talk to him, tell him Dwight Little said hi. I will definitely do that. Yeah. 
so what was it like to uh, revisit? Uh, so when you're doing uh, Natty Knox, the you know work with Danielle Harris again and Robert England. Well, we were. It was just hysterical because she's like the real estate mom. And the, the last time I had worked with her, she was little Jamie Lloyd. Right. So so uh, we had an awful lot of fun, and um, you know I would always confuse her on set and called her Jamie when her, her character was <laughs> Diane, whatever her name was. And she, you know, she was sold real estate, and she had these kids, and her husband is leaving her, and she's trying to. She has this babysitter to try and look after the younger one while she's away, and so there were all these grown woman problems. Um, but she's just grown into a very good adult actress. In other words, you can give her any scene, give her any line, and she's. You know, she is not like a one-trick horror pony. You could cast her in anything. No, yeah, she's a legit, uh, very good actor. Yeah, uh, it was fun. I was—I forgot. I mentioned uh, when I was reading your book, and you almost did the the previous movie with Seagal. Uh, if that would have been your follow-up to Halloween Four, I thought you would have been the coma guy, like because Michael Myers comes out of the coma. Yeah. And like, um, oh. Well, that was right. That was all happening, and uh, I was part of the reason I couldn't do five. But it's just as well that Hard to Kill didn't work out. Mark for Death, I think, is a better movie. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a big fan of the, the early Seagal movies. Uh, I, th I think they're, you know, they're fun action movies, but I think they're good movies, too. I think it grows up through Under Siege 1. Mm -hmm. I think that was like the pinnacle, um, the Andy, uh, Andy, you know, the director. But uh, he did Above the Law, um, and then he also did Under Siege. And I think all throughout for justice up through under siege he really peaked and and it was really good filmmaking um and then there was this slow diminishing returns um and it really kind of went upside down when, when he started to want to direct then it didn't go so well yeah so, um does that I guess though, I was to say, does that work out? But it obviously has worked out. There's some great uh, actors who uh, directed their own stuff. Like oh Moore yeah, and, stuff, so. and, and more. You know who's a great director is Ben Affleck. Mm. He's a he's a great director. I don't know if you saw the Nike one. Um, yeah, I go see almost. Uh, I'm not just a horror guy. I go see almost every movie yeah. that comes out. Uh, and yeah, that was a big surprise. I thought that movie was great. I know some of my friends like, well, who cares about uh, Eric Jordan's? I'm like. That's like saying uh, Rocky is you can only like if you like boxing. I mean, right, it's, not, right. it's about that, but that's not really what the movie's. No, about. he did well. Of course, he's what did he do? The town, and mm -hmm. and and he did Argo. He won an Oscar. I mean, but there's, uh, I mean, there's an actor who, I you know, arguably better director than anything. He's a really good director. And uh, when I mention I go see everything, like I agree with you. Uh, obviously i watch a lot of stuff online too because to do the show and everything but there's nothing like seeing a movie in the in the theater no i'm very anxious friday night i'm gonna go see um the new creator movie I'm oh yeah i've been i've i i didn't get to go see it last week because i was busy but i'm gonna go see it saturday i'm really excited it looks uh, the trailers look great it does really look good i've, I've had mixed you know the critics were all over the place on that, and the and the box office was soft. But I'm very keen to see it. 
Yeah, no, and I, I, I'm, I always like artificial intelligence uh, stories. I always think they're interesting. I, I, I did a show once. I think you can take it back to Pinocchio. It's kind of like the first artificial intelligence uh, story. I think almost every movie that comes out now, it'll is, be about. <laughs> um, it gets split in terms of the critical response. Oh yeah, yeah. Almost everything, and. Um, you know, I don't know about box office anymore. I don't know what people want to pay to see. True, and uh, I think that's a problem with uh, Rotten Tomatoes, is because divisive movies, if people really love it or they hate it, it get it'll have like a 40, 40 or fifty percent, and the stuff that is like eighty or ninety percent, it's usually stuff that people just, even if they just think it's okay, they'll hit thumbs up. So it doesn't really mean it's great. It just means the majority of people think it's not bad. Well, that's right. Where we came in on Nanny Knox, we came in like at forty percent or something, and and even but if you look at even the negative reviews, they don't really don't. It's not that they don't like the movie; they don't like their expectations of the movie, and they're reviewing you know what they wish it was rather than what it is. And um, Rotten Tomatoes, I don't think overall is helpful. I, I, just I don't, don't think so either. I always got it. I always just kind of roll my eyes when anyone even mentions it, like, "Oh, that has whatever percent." Yeah. And I was like, "Who?" I mean, there are what movies that, that have ninety percent that you wouldn't want to wish on your worst enemy. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, how how did you, especially earlier in your career, how did you look at uh, critiques of your film? Since you know the movie itself is personal to you, how did you take the the critics? Well, I don't make. Uh, art house movies. So right, right. I have never been anybody's darling. Um, and I just kind of had to accept that, you know, early on. Um, it's at first it stings to be tell you the truth. Like I made a, a Joe Don Baker movie called Getting Even, which is this crazy 80s action movie. And, you know, of course, we got massacred by the critics, but it's really fun. I mean, it's just a you know, balls out, 80s, guns and ammo, helicopter action movie. Yeah. Um, and then when I realized that everybody hated that, I realized, well, you know, they're looking for something else, and it's not just really about me. Um, and then Phantom, and I, I kind of got used to it, to tell you the truth. I don't like it. I'd rather hear good news than bad of course, news. Of course, yeah. But... I'm not making, you know, the English patient where, you know, people with Shakespeare in love or movies where critics are going to kind of fawn over it. They're B genre movies. That's the, the Joe Bob Briggs movies. Yeah. They're, yeah, yeah. That's what they are. And um, I mean, if you like an act, you got to like Mike Mark for Death. Or if you like an action kung fu movie, you got to like Rapid Fire. If you don't, if you like romantic comedies, yeah, you're not gonna like it to begin with. All right, all right. Uh, I always say on the show, like, uh, two of my favorite movies are Basket Case and Taxi Driver. Uh, <laughs> do I know one's probably better than the other? For yes, but but they they both uh, give me the same. I both are very entertained by both movies. Yeah, I mean, I I, I wish that sometimes the the taste makers uh, would come along and enjoyed the party but but generally people do you remember when you know when you were a kid it was all about what band you liked right, and right. it was like and if you liked a band and somebody would be oh they suck man how can you <laughs> like them you know 
and it, it becomes very personal taste. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I, I like Aerosmith, but I hate the Doobie Brothers, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's what the internet is now today. It's uh, very personal yeah. if you like or dislike. Uh, oh yeah, I and mean, you just make enemies if you dare to like something that's not popular. Right, right. But that's uh, politics too, right? Everybody's yes, hate. it is. I just hate, you know, how dare you? Mm-hmm. Yes, the last few years, it's very, uh, very strange. It's a very polarizing world out there. Well, which, we're, uh, in, we're in for a wild ride now. The next year is going to be wild, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it will be wild. I don't know if it'll be good or not, but it will definitely be wild. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so the Phantom of the Opera... Uh, the, the poster really goes into, it even says like he was, he was Freddie and now he's the Phantom. Uh, was that your decision? And looking oh, back, no. do, do you think that was like too far? To it was a huge, huge mistake. And, and they felt like that's all they had was to try and tie. They almost, they even tried to make him look like Freddie in the Yeah. Post. He doesn't really look like he does in the movie. No, the they tried post. to make it look like it's Freddie and the Phantom. Freddie and the, Freddie and the Opera is what they should have called it. Um, you know, and a bunch of kind of crass, craven marketing people thought that gimmick would get asses in the seats, as they say. Um, and it didn't, and it, and it missold the movie. There are some wonderful, beautiful posters for that movie from the European release. Very elegant, very artistic uh, posters, one sheets. And I think if they had just trusted the movie a little bit more and sold it for the music and the the feeling, and yes, there's a a horror element to it, but sell the the love story, I think they would have done better but they they just went lowbrow and tried to pass it off as as a you know a, as, as a carnival barker thing and it's a bit backfired yeah um what was the decision to instead of like the traditional like half mask he you know he sews the skin on which i think is really cool and i also think it kind of goes into the idea of in your version he's like cursed so he's got like this skin that uh, doesn't decay or anything but he just has to keep sewing it onto his face well, we, we were trying to figure out how to do a mask. There have been so many versions done with an actual mask. And, and it seemed like, how are you going to do that again? Um, the Lon Chaney, Herbert Lom, or whatever. And, and you know, of course, in, in, in the Lloyd Webber on Broadway, you know, it's the famous, you know, Phantom's Mask. So we thought, well, this will be really interesting and gory if he needs the skin of his victims in order to make a mask, it seemed. And, and, and it's also cool that it's actually, t- it's, pa- it pains him to sew them onto his face. So I think that really yeah. just adds it, to- it was grisly to watch and, and it was very grisly. Um, that was interesting. I think the deal with the devil, we were trying to make that connection to the Faust, you know, the opera that they were doing, the Faustian bargain that he had made a Faustian bargain that, that if he def- was deformed, uh, that his music would be, uh, would last forever, that he'd be an immortal, like, Be, you know, like Beethoven and Mo- Mozart, that he'd be an immortal. And, and so that's the deal he made with the devil and it cost him. And, uh, so later, you know, in the, 
many years later in New York, the, the young actress, you know, finds this opera and, the, and then the opera is brought back to life, which catapults her back in time. And I thought it was all very interesting personally. Yeah. And that was a big difference from what I've read online, actually, because online they say that the, the bookend of the movie that play, takes place in modern day was there because of the planned sequel. Then I'm reading your book, and that wasn't even in the original script. It was something that you added to make the character more modern, like a modern uh, woman. Yeah, and that was a bit mercenary, to be fair, because we wanted like to open the movie instead of in 19th century England. Uh, we we wanted to, to feel more of the moment. And so we made her a Juilliard student, you know, in the present. And then she, and then when the, when the story's over, she comes back. There's a very haunting shot of her walking down the New York streets and, you know, the guy plays the thing and she turns. And you know that this haunting music is still going to follow her wherever she goes. It's very creepy. And of course... You know, Robert is this theater empresario in this weird apartment with these masks lined up. Um, that was wild. Yeah, I love it. And it, it really ties into like an original Universal Monster movie because I'll, I'll, a majority of those are about these timeless loves like The Mummy and, and Dracula. Right. And so I think it made it feel like a classic horror movie and also an updated one with gore and stuff. I don't know. I think... There's a lot of fans of the movie. They just had to let go of their expectations and just let the movie wash over them. Mm -hmm. Also, we had a very, we also had a very young Bill Nye in that movie. Yeah, that's uh, very cool. It's actually a really cool cast all around. Yeah. Uh, and I also read, I don't know if there's any truth to this, that Dance Macabre was... The, the sequel, then they rewrote it uh, into Dance Macabre. I was not involved with the sequel. I know that uh, Robert had been speaking with Menachem Golan at length about it. Um, and I just was never in that loop, so I can't really comment on it. Mm -hmm. But my movie, the, the bookends were intended for that movie. It, it, we weren't just trying to yeah, tee up. up something like a franchise yeah. or something. Yeah, um, you're honest in the book about your affair with Jill, uh, making Phantom, and so how does that affect your role as a director? Does that instead of thinking about like what's best for the movie, does that affect like oh I, I want to appease you know the person I'm in a relationship with? Well, it does affect um, you know the power dynamic. Uh, between a director and the actor. Um, it's not healthy. It's not a good idea. <laughs> right. uh, because now that power shifts. Um, and I only mentioned it um, in the book, really. I guess the cautionary tale may be the right word. This is, you know, no beef on anybody, but it's, you know, it's better to keep the professional professional. Yeah. So, uh, what would be your advice to someone? Because uh, you're very uh, honest in the book about there's great big moments in your career. And then if a movie doesn't go well, like, you know, things are can be bad for you. What would be your advice to someone who wants to get in the movies? Well, I do think you have to, you, you, you have to very early on find a, like a brand of 
like everything is branded. Like who, are, what do you bring to the party? Um, like, are you really an expert in thriller or horror or comedy or like, what do, what do you have that makes you, you know, a movie director with something to offer? And then I think when you're, if you choose to go to film school or not, make sure that that first short, whatever you, you know, that first short that you do, because a lot of people start with, you know, doing a short of some kind. Sometimes it's in the context of being in film school and sometimes it's outside. But do something that reflects what you want your first feature to feel like. Like, do that. And then when you've put together, if you can, your first, feature by you know cobbling together some money and shooting it on a black magic or whatever you know make sure that that's who you are you don't want to confuse people it's like well wait a minute i thought he was this comedy guy and then they get confused and then that's not good also when you're up for assignments people want to know when you walk in the room like can he or she do this movie like if, uh, you know, if you're doing a, a very intimate, um, you know, indie drama, you're probably not going to just bring in the guy who just did um, Terrifier 2. <laughs> right, right. That's just not going to be the meeting you, you want to have. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think you have to be very pragmatic about how are you going to turn your talent into a living because it's not really it's not a hobby this is not something to you can do for fun now if you teach or you've got a you know a bicycle shop that you run during the week or if this is a hobby then do whatever the hell you want right mm -hmm. but if you're talking about paying your groceries and your light bill and your car payment off of this life then you have to be like, what am I, how am I going to monetize this thing that I'm trying to do? Like when I go into the room for a meeting, like why are they going to, why should they pick me? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not fooling around. You know what I mean? Cause your livelihood is going to depend on this. Uh, it's interesting you said about uh, short film because I do a lot of uh, I go to a lot of festivals and I, I I often wonder the thought process behind making short films like because I know a lot of people who make them and then make a feature but I know a lot of people who just make short films but never make anything else and that's fine if they enjoy doing that but um, like you can't really sell that as a DVD well that kind yeah, of there's very limited hobby. platforms they can go on that's kind of a hobby right that's kind of a something you enjoy doing i guess yeah you're not expecting cash back but some of them you know will raise like uh like tens of thousands on uh indiegogo whatever which i never understand to put that much money into a, a short film uh but i i don't know but i i like the idea that that's what i've always thought was like if you make a short film this is what i like a like hey this is what i can do with a feature film if i'm given the shot well, it's kind of an advertisement a lot of times for the feature version. Um, I think Lights Out was a short film that they made into uh, 
I think there have been several shorts that have yeah, been The certain. movie did really well recently. Talk to me, the people that did that, like they make shorts on, on, on YouTube. Yeah, they're, they're a good example. I do think it's a little bit of an anomaly, and I'll tell you why. Because they were able to access um, the Australian Film Commission and a lot of government money um, to put that together mm-hmm. because of whatever their Australian cred was. Um, we don't have anything equivalent to that here. We don't have the, you know, the Canadian Film Board, or there's no, there is no place to go to to apply for a grant, or you know, to get the 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 American <clears throat> something fund. This is business here. There's you know, there's no, there's not money now. They'll get plenty of money, right? Because Talk to Me was a big hit. Yeah. So they can come to America now and they can get financed. But to get their first film done, and they spent money on that. It's a good-looking movie. Yeah, I thought it was one of the best horror movies of the year. Yeah, it was very, but it was well professionally done. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it looks good, yes. And, and the acting also was excellent. But um, I have complaints about the story, but the acting was excellent. Um, but, 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 you know, you can't do that here. There is no fund uh, that you can apply for. So they had a real leg up. And if you look at the head credits of that movie, the first thing that comes up is something Australian. The second thing that comes up is in association with Australian something, something. And they have government money that they spend on, on um, you know, indi- not indigenous, but people of Australia making them. So they're lucky in a sense, because because it hit, now they, you know, they can raise money now. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, Terrifier two uh, uh, just a little while ago. Um, do you think that movie being so successful that is uh, beneficial for like uh, independent uh, directors? You know, after that, not really. It's it's a one off. I mean, I know there was a Terrifier one, but right, right. but um, it's that's too niche in my view. Um, it's so gore porny. Um, and it's, yeah. not really, it's not really fair because I haven't seen it, but, but I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it, yeah. <laughs> but it very, it is. Uh, I've got, a, I have a weird uh love for it because I saw it in a theater with like normal audiences. And for me, as someone who's watched a lot of crazy stuff, there is like a, a, a it's kind of fun that I'm watching this really gory, uh, graphic, more graphic than probably anything I've seen in a theater. And like it's people who think they like were they're going to see like the conjuring or something and they leave. So I I have a like to me that was kind of fun, but it's almost like a, a troll, I guess. Well, he's had a creepy face for sure. Um, yeah, no, I like the movie too, but yeah, but, I like know, the first one better. It's like yeah, you know, going all the way back to Blair Witch and how that created this uh, found footage thing. Except for Clover, there wasn't much follow up on that. It's not like. I mean, everybody tried it, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody then tried to copy that, and it and it didn't really. I mean, that once was, you see it, it's hard to like recapture that same. Right. Vibe. That was a that was a breakthrough, low budget indie horror that hit. I think it was also it was the perfect time for the internet for Blair Witch, where it was big enough people could were on it, but it wasn't too big where people knew that this was a move because there was this weird thing about. Is it this real video that someone found? You know, there there was like a real buzz about if this. Yeah, was yeah, no, it had its own gritty kind of 
a realism about it that was kind of scary. Um, but horror, horror is a tricky uh, genre. Um, you know, it works and it doesn't. You know, for everyone that, what's the reason? Well, Smile worked, Barbarian worked, uh, Cobweb not so much. Um, but they, they, every so often one will break through. Mm-hmm. But then there's, you know, fields of, upon fields of ones yeah. that you've never heard of. But it is more of a genre where the smaller movies do at least have a chance of uh, people right. checking it out. That's right. But, you know, like a low budget drama. I mean, it's possible, but it, there, you know, every year there's a, there's a few low budget horror movies that do well at the theater. That's right. That's right. And, and, and now a little subgenre that's working on VOD westerns. Um, there are there's a little subgenre of westerns that are doing okay. I don't know why, but they exist. <laughs> yeah. You know, you get Cole Hauser and you put him in a western. And, um, I actually that, didn't know this. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, it was no, that's an interest. That's a, quite a world. Um, it's a real thing, and they shoot them for cheap in Tucson on you know an old western sets, and um, there's there's a lot of them, and they usually a lot of times they get country stars to appear in them. And um, not, people who don't know that world don't aren't aware. Yeah. But um, there is a subgenre of of indie westerns that's pretty flourishing. Um, otherwise, you have to have cast, right? If it's a romance or if it's something, you you have to have breakthrough cast, pretty much. Yeah, there's not really like uh, you know clerks, but that's like thirty years ago. But there's no movie like that today where it's like this real low-budget, weird comedy drama that just, just all of a sudden... It just doesn't happen now. There's not a, you know, there's not a theatrical window for that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the last thing I saw on any of the streamers except for the one I just saw with Benicio Del Toro that was really any good. Um, but, you know, we'll see how this all... First, the, the first thing that has to happen is the screen actors have to settle their deal so we can make all we can't even right now make offers to actors can't package a movie because they're not allowed to even engage with looking at scripts so we need to get that deal done yeah and uh what are your thoughts on ai uh written movies or ai in general in, in movie making oh i just think it's like having a really good assistant next door in your office i don't think it means anything i think it's like another it's, tool it's just a tool it's just having it's overhyped beyond belief i mean it's like i call it super super google i mean <laughs> i mean yeah it's there but people are going to learn how to use it as a tool but there's nothing you can't take a collage of a john grisham book and you know, this script and, and just come up with a montage and say that's a screenplay. It's, to me, I think it's, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I just think it's completely overhyped. It's going to be. I think the same thing. So yeah. I mean, you can go to ChatGPT. I have ChatGPT. Uh, yeah. Well, last time I was in LA, my friend Michael, he, he did a, uh... He just did a bio of me, and it did like 30 seconds, and it was pretty wild, and it was fairly accurate. There's a couple things I would add to change, but overall, like I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. But I could see how you could do that, and you could go in 
and just correct the stuff that needed correcting. And it gave me like a, a basic outline. Well, but that's not the end of the world, right? It's no, like, no, no, no. It, it was a lot of stuff that it would have just been busy work to, to write, really. Yeah, I think academia, academia is going to have a problem with it because you can just say, you know, who was responsible at Yorktown for such and such a thing. And, you know, you're going to get a paper pretty quickly because that is redigestible information. Mm -hmm. uh, but the an original screenplay, original idea, original teleplay worked out by a writer. I don't know why everybody's so up in arms about it, honestly. There's a new AI program for Adobe uh, to help with uh, like bad audio. So I, I've been using it on some of the old uh, podcasts, like uh, before there was an easier way to record stuff. And I've had really good success with it. And a few times it changes audio words, which is very strange. But overall, like it works real. And again, that's just like a tool to help clean well, up. It's like, just like you have stuff. an assistant next door. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, clean this up for me. And yeah. I just hit a button and it works. Yeah, yeah. so you just... It's more power in certain ways. Like if you're researching a book, um, you know, you can just get quick answers. I guess, yeah, I guess you could even, like when you mentioned Google, for uh, when when that first came out, people would be like, oh, well, this is taking away the power of the library or the encyclopedia or something. Because you well, can just type it in and look it up. Right, yeah. But all these technologies, you know, they, 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 they sell in. I... I don't think we're all going to have robots coming down the hallway with, <laughs> with our glass of wine. Yeah. So you did not write "Still Rolling Inside the Hollywood Dream Factory" yeah, with ChatGPT. <laughs> well, see, but that's a perfect example since you looked at the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine that any of that could come out of anything other than one guy's brain? <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, there's the my because person. the amount. Honestly, when I was looking up. Uh, some stuff about uh, particularly like Phantom and uh, Halloween 4, a lot of stuff I looked up was incorrect. So if you would have just done it with that, you probably would have been filled with stuff that was just what other people said on, on Wikipedia and it wouldn't be, you know. Right. And you wouldn't have the personal stories in it. Right. It's, and it's all very personal. And I think all art is very personal. And um, it, it's not, you know, even something like, Oppenheimer. I mean, this is like there's been how many books written about Oppenheimer and how many biographies and how much historical detail. But this was one guy's point of view on how all that happened. Yeah, that's a good point because I actually read the book that it's based on after because I like the movie so much. I was, and I, I listened to a lot of audiobooks and, um, even just when I start listening, the stuff about him in school is much different in the book that it's based on than the, than the movie. Well, you know, and, and Nolan has his own artistic point of view sure. that he brings to it, and, and uh, that's what makes it a film. Um, so I, I don't know. I think this will settle down and people will just go back to work. I think people will use people will use AI. Sure. Yeah, and a lot. I we use it a lot anyway already. That uh, even just like um, different things on your on your phone, like filters. I, I mean, that's AI. Sure. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I can tell. I mean, maybe it'll get better, but I can tell a fake Tom Hanks from a real Tom Hanks. 
Right, right. It doesn't really trick yeah. me very much. Yeah. The thing that's weird about that to me is w when they use like uh, deceased uh, actors, I always wonder like, would they want to be in this? And, and who like gets credit? Who gets like, uh, who gets paid for that? Yeah. Usually some estate owns the rights, right, to something like that. I mean, that's a legal reuse question. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if you're going to put Spencer Tracy into a movie, you need permission from Spencer Tracy's estate to right. do that. I mean, that's a legal thing. I would. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of what the, the strikes are about, too, is about just guidelines for certain things. Like I have some friends who've done background in movies in L.A. and they started to scan people. And the idea was they would just use like scans of people instead of hiring like background players in the future. And so stuff like that is just. They have to figure out, like, you know, what a way to compensate people. And uh, well, I don't think that's a hard one to figure out. I mean, if, they, if they're going to scan your image on the day that you showed up um, and you crossed in the courthouse steps in the background and they scanned that and you're dressed a certain way with a briefcase, if they want to reuse that shot of you walking up the courthouse steps, they should have to pay you some little. Sure. Re, just a reuse fee, right? Yeah, yeah. But it, it's not really very complicated. I mean, no, it should be almost common sense stuff. Like, right? Can't just I mean, you and just use you forever without, you know. Well, you know, they've been using um, background crowds, what they call panels, you know, for years, where you fill a stadium with eighty thousand spectators, and they're all digital. But but they're digital creations, so there is no human that person. they're they're copying. I mean, it's all it's, it's all created in the computer. But most of those huge crowd scenes you see, and you know, they don't fill up the stadium. So, are you uh, working on anything currently, or do you have plans to? Uh... I, I have two movies that I'm stirring the pot with. Again. Um, one of them I would call, it's a little bit in the, it, it's going all the way, it, it, the modern take would be sort of like a taken. The old version, is, it's like a Billy Jack death wish, um, straight ahead Clint Eastwood movie, you know, a guy who comes into a town. It, it's an action vehicle that I really like. I think it's very, very of the moment, um, you know, with, fentanyl and cartels and all this stuff so i'm working on that and i do have a, a sci-fi um alien movie oh, cool. uh that i'm working on called fast walkers um that's coming together so yeah but i you know we've all been out here we've all been frozen for many right. months mm -hmm. i mean completely frozen i can't be on the phone to talk to the writers i can't be on the phone with the producers to talk about casting, I, you know, you, it's just, we're really stuck. Mm -hmm. And uh, where uh, people can get, where can people get your book? I believe it's on Amazon. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah. That's the, the usual suspects. It's like Amazon's the easiest. It's also at Barnes and Noble. And I mean, not the, it's at barnesandnoble.com and, and all the online sites it's, it's there. It's also at the publisher McFarland press. Um, also, you can go to my personal website, which is DwightLittleDirector.com, and there's a there's a button there where you can link to it. Um, so it's as long as you type in "still rolling," 
inside the Hollywood Dream Factory. You can find it anywhere. And Natty Knox, as you mentioned, is now on Tubi um, and it's on other, um, you know, YouTube and iTunes and things like that. So it's, it's out there for people to see if they want to just enjoy a Halloween movie. Yeah. No, it's the perfect season for it. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, as you can tell behind me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And now real quick too, uh maybe kind of a hack question, but what are some of your favorite horror movies? Uh you know, maybe you inspired you to become a, a director. Well, it wasn't just horror with me. I was a little more of an action guy, but um I was pretty taken with Silence of the Lambs like everybody was just because just the artistry of that and the the performance and the the real terror of it, I think. I was absolutely crippled when the first time I saw The Exorcist, I, I just went back to some friend's house. We were probably, we were 15 maybe, and we, we just couldn't go home. You know, we stayed up. That's probably the most terrifying thing I ever saw as, as a young. Yeah, no, I think it still holds up. And, and yeah. I read the book for the first time recently. Read, and, uh, the well, book, yeah, the, a great novel, yeah. There's another one coming out, but yeah, I would say The Exorcist. Yeah. Um, I never, I never really loved Poltergeist per se, um, but The Exorcist stands up. I, I really liked um, uh, the, the street action movies like uh, French Connection, and oh, uh, some of the even though some of the Roger Corman stuff that was more more like action movies. I liked, I liked all that. I do have this, this highbrow side of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love, uh, like, I'll give you some examples, like LA Confidential, uh, Wonder Boys, uh, Amadeus, um, a movie, like American Beauty, I think is almost like a perfect movie. Um, so, some of the um, Oscar bait movies, I just, I just think, um, you know, what we used to be Oscar movies, right. that that bar has been lowered beyond. To the point. <laughs> it doesn't really. It's it's just all, it's it's all um, political posturing now. It's, it's they just lost they lost their ability to do it. I mean, I loved No Man Land. I thought uh, No Mad Land was an interesting indie. I think that belonged in the, you know, in a Lemley theater and it was a good indie movie, but it's not an Oscar movie. It's just an interesting I don't think movie. I've even seen it. Yeah, it's, it's, it won Best Picture. Okay, yeah. I used to really, uh, you know, uh, I'm not someone who hates the Oscars or anything. I mean, it's something I grew up watching, but I haven't paid attention to it as much as I used to. Well, because they're not, because they're not the level of artistry is not up there. Um, at the level where you'd think of as, you know, the English patient or something. It's not at that level. Um, you know, they and now, you know, there's a Korean movie that won an Oscar. There was a movie about um, a deaf, something, deaf fisherman or something. A very good movie, but it's what I would have called in the old days, like a really good after-school special. I mean, it was, uh-huh. you know, it was a well-meant movie, but it's not an Oscar movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it it just wasn't so. I I miss the the ambition of Gladiator. You know, like Russell Crowe 
in a Ridley Scott film that fills the screen and takes you. The opening sequence from Gladiator is is beyond description. That opening battle is just in the snow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a sucker for big the big Hollywood. Think, you know, I think uh, uh, some of that is a lot of the big. It used to be big Hollywood movies were also good movies. Um, whereas right. a lot of the bigger movies now are. I mean, that's fine if you like the Marvel movie stuff, but they're just kind of big, kind of d- dumb action movies, I guess. Yeah, they they run their course, I think. You know, I don't, you know, like Fast and the Furious is that going to be up for an Oscar? I, I I wouldn't think so, but you know. Well, it's, I don't know. I've actually never even seen any of them, but uh, well, they're they're cartoons. Uh, yeah, yeah. People are, in but time. you know, what I mean, it used to be like a, a blockbuster movie, like Jaws is like a great movie, and it's also a big, right. you know. Indiana Jones, those kind of movies were still really good movies. Yeah, although this last one was like, I hey, <laughs> Well, yeah, well, there you go. It was a, a young uh, um, a young Indiana Jones at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it just didn't, didn't work out. All right, well. Yeah, um, it's been very fun. Thank you for having me uh, join your. Yeah, no, I had a great time. I hope you did as well. Yeah, very great. It was very great. And yeah, definitely if people. Well, you looked at the book, so you know if people are no, interested really like in, in film. And I hope you got a few interesting insights from reading it. I definitely did. Yeah, and I hope people check it out. Um, I know a lot of horror fans watching this, but um, a lot of just movie fans are watching this. So I think people will, will like it. All right. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you.